0: And had a great stable day job um, to learn the business from. And then along the way, I kind of call it my side hustle. You know, the downturn happened in 2008, 2009, and it felt like real estate was really cheap because it was in hindsight, but nobody had capital. Nobody had any money. So was able to cobble together a few dollars and, um, and bought my first deal from a bank. And that led to probably, honestly, 12 or 15 more deals from that same bank that things kind of, you know, kind of Snowball from there.
1: Listen everybody, we all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start, and most of the education out there is just complete trash, and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Appreciate you joining me today. So for today's episode, what I wanna do is go back and replay one of my favorite episodes. So Ryan Cahalan is the CEO of Artisan Capital and I had him on the Brenneman Blueprint pretty early on. This would have been back in uh, April of like 2022, I think the episode came out. And we really went long form into what he's, what he's done to build his firm. And Artisan Capital has right around a billion dollars of property today. And what's interesting with Ryan's, you know, what we kind of pulled out in the episode is just just really the hard work it took uh, to get to that point where, you know, if you, you were to just kind of see it now, you'd go, "Wow, well, look at this established firm and uh, doing these big deals. But we really went into what, what did it take to get to where he's at today? And then what, and obviously what they're doing today, but what really what's has stuck with me from this episode was a lot of the conversation about the hard work. So Ryan basically had, he worked more or less two jobs for like twenty years, where he was working a, a regular real estate job. Different, he's done he had done different things for his career, where he was working at a. A multifamily investment firm, and then was a lender, and and but all the while was building up his real estate portfolio, getting investors, building the sort of seed portfolio that then jump started Artisan. But it is it was really, uh, I mean, I loved hearing about the hard work because yeah, this is you know getting Brennaman Capital going, and uh, so far what I've done in my career, it's really been a lot about hard work and not being af- being afraid to take your shot. So I mean, I'm recording this right now at. Uh, 6 23 p.m. on a, a Friday before a holiday weekend so I mean it's um, you know this is just uh, what it's like and so it was in, it was great to have Ryan talk about it kind of with no filter um, and something too that you know the podcast has grown so much and you know so thank you all um, but the podcast has really grown a ton um, since uh, since this episode came out and, and so I wanted to make sure if you skipped it this here it is again, definitely worth a listen. If you're a broker, you can learn, but what are these, you know, buyers thinking these days? If you're same thing, if you're a lender, if you're, if you want to build a real estate portfolio, you want to build a real estate company. I mean, here's Ryan, uh, you know, a billion dollar portfolio. This is the guy to learn from. So I want to make sure that this episode is, uh, you know, given it's, it's fair due. So, and then, um, you know, if, (laughs) if you're watching on YouTube, sorry, if the, uh, the, The colors flickering a little we got this uh late texas sun coming in through this uh this window up top here so that um uh you know that's that's what you get for shooting it at you know six so but anyways yeah i think that um you know you you all will find a lot of value in this and i just appreciate everybody listening and supporting the podcast, you know, uh, liking the videos on YouTube and subscribing and leaving ratings and reviews. I mean, it's really this, uh, it's been surprising how much this thing's grown. So, I mean, I appreciate you all listening and then, um, you know, just want to go back and pull out like an episode that, you know, we did pretty early on. Um, that's still very applicable today and added a lot of value for me. And I think will we'll add a lot of value for you all as well. So we'll catch you later. Today's guest is Ryan Callahan. Welcome. Hey Drew, how you doing? Great. Yeah. So really pumped to bring Ryan on. He's the co-founder and CEO of Artisan Capital Group. Kind of joking before we got started together, you know, not as partners, but just sort of collectively. We own over a billion dollars of property, but it's uh, 200 million me, 800 million Ryan. So I'm happy to happy to get here and learn something today. Well,
0: the 800, we have a lot of good partners, so Artis and Capital Group why well, we're the general partner and, and uh, the the sponsor, we've got some good investors that helped us get to that 800 million marks.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, so I've got, you know, questions I wanna ask Ryan and you kinda of hear, um, we've known each other for like 10 years, so hear more, um, Yeah. kinda of hear how it all started. Yeah, who would've
0: thought 10 years ago, we were sitting here with, uh, you know, combined portfolio of a billion dollars.
1: Yeah, no, it was surreal, I mean, maybe I was, I mean, I was probably like 20 million maybe then <laughs> yeah. and, uh yeah. So no, we are yeah. a bit, a bit from that.
0: Um, well, nice. Well, yeah, let's just jump into it. I mean, sure. how'd you get started to start us off for a You know, That's actually a great question. Uh, how I got started in real estate. I I think the first question is why did I choose real estate or how to get into real estate? And, you know, growing up, um, and through high school, college, I was always pretty good with numbers. I mean, numbers came natural to me and I liked, um, you know, once I got into fi- finances courses, I enjoyed those, those courses and and learning about that and n- numbers were natural. Um, more so than stocks and bonds with real estate it's more of a tangible asset i do appreciate good design and i like um you know nice building design and, and the physical um you know facade and and uh, curb appeal of, of buildings so for me to b- combine my my skill set and in, in, you know math and finance with the r- with real estate as a fixed asset made a lot of logical sense to at least start down real estate as a career path so um had an uncle in the business who uh, was a good mentor of mine that kind of taught me a thing or two and Really coming out of uh, college, you know, University of Northern Iowa graduating December of 99, I didn't really know you know, what I wanted to do or where, but I knew I needed to get out of the state of Iowa where I'm from and I, I love Iowa and you'll hear we've gone yeah. back to Iowa in a pretty big way, but for me to spread my wings and just kind of, um, I think um, learn a lot about myself as well as my my career path, I needed to get out. So I went to Los Angeles for a couple of years and joined HFF as an analyst and a white collar sweatshop, worked probably a hundred hours a week type thing for a couple of years, but learned a bunch. Um, Really started to put together the big picture of commercial real estate with regards to the asset types, the different food groups from office, industrial, retail, hotel and obviously multifamily. Um, But more more than anything, just learned how deals are are capitalized and structured, the types of capital from debt to equity and and every nuance in between. And then took the opportunity to go back to graduate school at University of Wisconsin and, and got my MBA there and continued down the real estate path, but really used graduate school for more of um, a gut check, you know, as a you know young 20-something to make sure I was going down the right path. And I wanted to use grad school as an opportunity to look at, take some accounting courses and marketing courses, entrepreneurship courses, just to make sure that, you know, I was on the right path. And one, it helped me kind of round out my education, some other functional areas. But two, it, it did reiterate the fact that I love real estate and I wanted to make it my career. What was so, your undergrad degree in? Finance and economics. So then yeah, at that point, did you feel like you could have used some more formal education on real estate because you've already been working in it long enough. So what, was, you know, in hindsight, you know, did I, did I learn a ton in grad school that I didn't already have a good understanding for? Probably not. But you know, graduate school is a good way to kind of, you know, one meet a network uh, of people that are still my friends and colleagues to this day. And I'm not gonna lie at 25, I wanted to go back to school and have a little bit more fun. Yeah. So. And two, that reason I want to ask that is I think a lot of people who are, you know,
1: 24, 25, 26, I was thinking the same thing when I was 26, I had just, moved to the city of Chicago and was kind of wondering what what would be like the next step and mm-hmm. this is so like a lot a lot of people are thinking like an MBA is needed or like a, sure. the next step when they're in their mid-20s in business so curious how that worked out for you and was
0: it worked out great I mean to me it gave me a, a chance to kind of pause step back um, and make sure I was on the right path and then when I landed in Chicago in 2003 uh, May or uh, April and May of 2003 really launched my career in earnest. And I felt like I was on the right path, you know, and my, my first job then was, um, with PPM America originating mortgages. And one of my mentors, uh, Julian Foster, um, you know, him and I teamed up and we originated a lot of good mortgages again on all different asset types, but going through that process, it affirmed where I really wanted my career to go. I gravitated towards multifamily. I just liked housing as an asset class. I thought there was, um, a lot of long term stability in the space. Um, but again, having that lending background with uh, PPM um, was very beneficial, because it taught me the, the nuts and bolts of how to underwrite deals and look at different um, you know performers and that sort of thing. Um, and actually, an interesting thing, again, you asked how I kind of got where I'm at. Every deal, we'd look at the sponsor too, and I remember looking at balance sheets and net worth, personal net uh, statements for a lot of the borrowers, and clearly they had a different net worth than, than I did. Yeah. But I re- it really what it did is it helped me visualize, instead of getting you know wealthy by making a lot of current income, I saw how their net worth was generated on the equity side. You know, I, I go back to an you know, accounting class, you got short-term assets, long-term assets, liabilities, and you know, the bottom right in my mind of this balance sheet is net worth or owner's equity. And I realized to you know to make yourself wealthy, it's not really an income uh, equation. It's how can you buy assets that create value over time? Right. And I learned that by you know analyzing this, these um, financial statements from a lot of sponsors. And really that gave me kind of, okay, the carrot of that's what I want to strive to do. That's very interesting. What did, did you, did anything cross
1: your mind seeing those sponsors in terms of like, did they have anything special
0: compared to you in your head or? You know, and and maybe not just those sponsors, but as I've met successful people in my, over my life, you know, a lot of times you meet successful people that are very high acuity, really smart. You, you have, you know, no doubt how they got to where they're at. And I'm not going to disparage anybody, but then sometimes you meet successful people and it's kind of the opposite. You're kind of surprised that, you know, this person, um, you know, just had the I would say the balls to right. you know, make things happen and and, they, and that served them well and they succeeded. So I can't say that I you know, can put my finger on one thing um, that identifies success, either from a financial statement from, you know, a smart person or, or somebody else, other than doing it. You know, right. you got to you can talk about good ideas all you want, um, but you got to get yourself in the game. Yeah,
1: and that's why I asked. I've noticed the same thing where there's people you'll meet and you'll be like, "Wow, they're so much smarter than me." Like I can't, you know, almost yep. can't believe it. But then for every one of those, there's someone where you're like, "Wow, if he can do it, I definitely can." That that's exactly right. So that that's, that's why exactly I asked right. that. Where I've uh, I've noticed that too. And then because I've thought that myself, just doing deals on my own, where yep. I see people that aren't really any necessarily have any special skills compared to me, or uh, you know, or kind of thought, "Well, if they're doing it, why can't I?" That's right. So. That's right it's interesting yeah because you saw that as a lender then
0: yeah i did i did i saw that as a lender and um you know what <laughs> my mindset as a mid-20 something as a lender if you get your principal back and a little interest that's a successful deal right and every deal i worked on i wanted to be on the other side of the table the person borrowing the capital to take on risk execute a business plan and then there they can be rewarded handsomely right so i like that idea of capturing capturing upside and um You know, really got to the point where I I also understood that I was more of a risk taker and entrepreneur than a lot of other people. Um, And, you know, in general, that served me well in life. Now, you know, you've got to always understand the risk you're taking. Um, You know, I think people that um, are blind to risk, that's when you get yourself into trouble, you know, and I maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. The first couple of deals I did, you know, I went in, especially in the downturn in Chicago in 2009, 2010, when I didn't have a lot of money um i was pretty leveraged buying assets but i felt like i was going in with my eyes wide open and it was definitely a risky proposition that not everybody would have been able to do but fast forward a few years values went up everything paid off and that's really what got me going to my career yeah my ownership career yeah and so you want to pick it up there or talk more? actually let's go you... back because um i think you know how i got started then in, in real estate while i was in chicago that the first investment property I ever bought was in cedar falls iowa at the, the college home or the college town that i i went to school in at northern iowa and I had a very good friend who now works with me and runs asset management. Marcus Chelson lived in Cedar Falls and was working in the the, the service industry. Um, and he had local knowledge and you know the ability to to lend sweat equity to project. I had some capital, and together we were able to buy some properties. I would front the equity. Um, he would oversee, and we would split the profits. Nice. So you know we did one, and then we did second, and I think we got up to seven or eight. And frankly, I I don't think I even stepped foot in half these properties, yeah, but, I had, but I had good eyes and ears on the ground. And that's when you know, go back to my visual of owner's equity. That's how we started cre- you know, creating equity, both Marcus and myself. I mean, he was doing it from a so- sweat equity standpoint and putting in the hours. And I was kind of running the numbers and could satisfy the lender requirements, that sort of thing. But that's really how things got started. And then fast forward a few years and you see you've created some equity value there and um, you know, here in Chicago, I then went from Walt, uh, from, um, uh, PPM and joined Walton Street Capital was, uh, building a, a multifamily, um, uh, operating company with David Levin called Levin Realty Advisors. So I went to work for David and, you know, really over the next eight years, I was on a plane, underwriting markets, underwriting deals, and looking at, at assets and had a great stable day job, um, to learn the business from. And then along the way, I kind of call it my side hustle. You know, the downturn happened in 2008, 2009, and it felt like real estate was really cheap cuz it was in hindsight but nobody had capital nobody had any money so was able to cobble together a few dollars and um and bought my first deal from a bank and that led to probably honestly 12 or 15 more deals from that same bank that things kind of you know kind of snowballed from there
1: nice so yeah so then HFF in LA got your MBA that's right then PPM PPM as a
0: lender yep and then um, then you move on the principal side principal side. Yeah. And that yeah, that really kind of got me where I wanted to be recognizing again through my few years of experience that I wanted to be on the principal side. Um, you know, had great exposure to the Wall Street Capital guys, really smart, taught me a ton, really have a lot of respect for them. Um, again, I was kind of David Levin's right hand man as we one built a portfolio, but also built a company which, right. you know, some of what I, I learned with that experience as kind of the second in command has served me well as I built my own company. Right. I was thinking that
1: as you're saying it, where you
0: wanted to be a principal, then you started doing that on your own. Mm-hmm. Let's
1: say nights and weekends, and then as you, and then you eventually were able to switch your full time
0: day job to that as well. Yep. You know, and then uh, you know, really learn a ton that way. Yeah. No. That's that's right. I mean, for it was a great eight years, and um, again, the, the last four or five years of that, I was kind of working two jobs, but um, you know, it, it served me well. And and that when people ask me, when young people ask me for advice, I mean, that's often the first thing I say is, don't quit your day job, you know? Like, your day job will allow you to take some risks and just work twice as hard, you know? And nobody said you need to work 40 hours a week. In fact, if there's one thing I can identify about successful people, they work hard. And, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. And I'm not saying you shouldn't find balance in your life because you certainly should, but um, I've yet to find a, a, a recipe for success other than just outwork the next person. And yeah and I think it's interesting what you're saying cuz I've
1: said the same thing so many times where when I went out on my own I already had 5 uh, properties that I owned with a partner large ones mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then two on my own and uh you know so then I already had 7 deals paying me yeah and then I went out yeah where it would have been so I to your point I kept my J job yep you know and I was buying deals on my own for years and then eventually it got to the point where like I this is day this, you know, just buying stuff in the evenings weekends is turned into a full-time thing now. And then that's when I did it, but exactly. And so what it's interesting to think, like during all that time, I basically stopped watching movies and sports nearly. And, um, you know, and it's not much has changed, you know, now I'm older. So my free time pivoted to like my kid basically, but I, I didn't, I never even
0: went back to doing that stuff now instead of watching like college football, I just, you got to prioritize your time. And I think a lot of, and I've been guilty of this, a lot of successful people, um, their first priority probably is their job or their business. And I don't know that that should be number one. Obviously, your your family, your friends, your loved ones um, should fall ahead of your profession. And I've probably had to um, resort my priorities over the years, which I, I'm working on. But, but, you know, again, when I'm in my mid-20s and, and early 30s, late 20s, early uh, 30s, you know, I, it probably avoided, helped me avoid some bad habits as well. You know, staying out too late at night and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. you know, you just gotta, you just gotta lean in and work hard and, and make things happen. And actually might be a good dovetail, um, you know, after eight years with Walton street, you know, when I did make that jump out on my own, um, you know, I felt like I was at a crossroads in my career of either wanting to, needing to double down, recommit to working kind of the private equity institutional model, and, you know work my way up the ladder at a at, at a private equity firm and I would say fight but you know kind of earn more equity in deals and that sort of thing what age what age and what year is this I was um, so this was 2012 um, so I was wow, 35 you know okay. it was about 10 years ago right now is when we had closed a big deal in Nashville uh, kind of coming out of the downturn um, very goodbye and, you know, as an acquisition guy, I had a little piece of the deal and a little piece of the back end, um, but I wanted to get that deal closed. And I knew I wanted to go into 2013 with kind of my own my own um, plans and my own ideas. And really what doing the small deals along the way, because I did start you know, raising some friends and family capital, it gave me confidence to see an see an idea or have an idea, see an opportunity and a- execute. Right. And then, you know, slowly start doing that on a larger scale. And... Um, You know, I could have stayed with, you know, the more the institutional route and worked my way up. But, you know, I recognize a little bit of there's the tendency for groupthink, you know, 20 smart people sitting around a conference room where everybody thinks they might be a little smarter than the next guy. And you just kind of talk and nothing really happens. And at the end of the day, you know, usually right decisions are made that way. But I think I was a little bit more impatient and I just wanted to rock and roll. And a lot of my, you know, instincts were for scrappy or small deals that I could cobble together. You need to move quick. And um, at the end of the day, I just felt that the time was right for me to make a move, go out on my own and, and scratch that entrepreneurial itch. And I, whether this is the right mindset or not, I always kind of felt if I failed, you know, if I worked hard for a couple of years and I failed, well, I could always go back and work my, work my way back in the rotation. I always say that. I always say that
1: where, Right. You could have just gone back to Levant right. or another similar place with all your experience. Yeah, I I think I was employable. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, for sure where I always right. I always say that where like the worst case isn't you're going to be, I mean, like homeless or something like right. we have all you have the degrees and yeah. the
0: experience. You just could go get another job. Sure. That's exa- that's exactly right. And I tell you what, October 1st of 2012, that first whenever the first Monday after I, I left, I've never been more motivated. than that day I woke up and I didn't have to go to I didn't go to my job and it's it's all on you you right. know so it's like so talk about working hard that's when i almost like tripled down to make sure that i wasn't you know going to be a failure makes so a lot of sense it, you know fear can be and it was scary but i also say this fear could be a a huge motivator if you let it you know and for me it you know that little element of of fear when you knew you didn't have a paycheck coming in every 2 weeks uh, really helped accelerate my my drive and my motivation and, and my my work ethic
1: Yeah, and there's and a lot of these things you're saying are the same things I've mentioned with getting something going Mm -hmm. like first you don't need to your day job really does help a lot with experience and paying the bills sure because even these deals you could do well on a deal but then if you have to use all that money to you know just pay your own bills you're not really compounding anything yet that's right you're spending it where yeah if you can stay in your job longer that's that's great and then same thing on the just going back to your job I always say that yeah and that's that's like a a big takeaway. To me so it's interesting they've seen a lot of the same stuff i have that's right what then what do you when you then when you went out on your own and said october 1st 2012 it was in right september Thereabouts. Okay. yeah this is interesting to remember the exact date well you it's, remember people moments in your life right yeah so yeah because i can remember roughly when i had to quit too or it was in like july 2011 you know where okay, it's like sure, a yeah. memorable yeah. time i yep. just um so yeah what then what did you have at that point going where you had some deals in iowa some in chicago Not, we
0: hadn't really done the iowa thing yet we bought some of the college houses that we still had but i really look at 2010 11 12 is when i you know went long and, you know the, the the cycle was such that in 2008 the 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 value drop in eight and nine was substantial um and i just focused in my backyard i always felt like I knew what a two bedroom you know, walk up would rent for in Lincoln Park or Wrigleyville or Bucktown and Wicker Park. So I, I just focused on my backyard. And it was one of those environments that you know doesn't come around often in your career, that you, there was real blood in the water. And if you showed up, and a lot of times I didn't have the money necessarily for for down payments or even to show proof of funds, but you just kind of figure out creative ways to, to make that work. Um, I just focused in my backyard. And then... Um, in hindsight, the opportunities didn't really dry up, but I felt like by 1314, the the buying opportunities, the, the real distress opportunities had had dried up. And I just say, but cap rates were, you know, you used to be able to buy like, you know, nine, ten caps, right? right? And then they were like six or seven. I'm like, oh, that feels pretty pricey. So that's when I took a step back and really analyzed a couple of different things. I analyzed capital flows nationally for multifamily. And by then, Nashville and Austin were popping east coast you know the coasts were were very you know very strong but in the sun belt as well but you know the big hole that i know well the upper midwest i just felt like was being overlooked by not only institutional investors but private investors and whatnot so i'm completely biased here because i'm from a small town in iowa and i love being from iowa and i always felt that des moines was a little hidden gem of a market that nobody was paying attention to so in 2013 2014 I really started studying Iowa as a case study of a market below a million people that had a very diversified local economy, that had um, you know population growth, educated workforce, quality of life, a cool factor. Right. And um, I always said if it was more than a million people, you know the institutions would would be keen to that market, but they weren't. So I just felt I used the moneyball strategy. I felt like Des Moines, Iowa, was that you know, that athlete that was maybe short and tubby, but could always hit and get on base. Like it was just being overlooked by right. the other guys. They were looking at the wrong things when evaluating markets. So if you're truly looking as an investor, you you know, I think the term risk adjusted return is way overused and misused in a lot of cases. But my, my view at that time was there's markets like Des Moines that are um, not evaluated properly. And that they're, um, they're trading at a, you know, a a premium really to what market value or or a discount, to what market value truly should be if you're analyzing the risk, the true risk of that deal. And smaller markets, the argument is, you know, five, seven, 10 years, who are you going to sell to? And I always hedge that uh, response with, well, if we have a longer term hold, I don't care if I'm locking into a great yield. If we as an investment partnership have a longer term horizon and I'm distributing a, a cash yield, that's much higher than you can get anywhere else. And we feel that the stability of the income and your noi is better than other places to me that's where you should park some dough right so that was kind of the origin of of this the strategy which then became artisan capital group but um i do need to mention after i went out on my own i put you know all my net worth on the table borrowed or not borrowed raised some outside capital and put together a nice portfolio but i felt like i was in a defensive situation just from a income standpoint, you know, if, if something happened, if a property needed a, a large capital infusion, literally, I think I emptied my bank accounts and bought these assets. So I, I was uh, approached by a group and I did go back into the kind of the working world for a bit in 13 and 14, 15, um, a mortgage originator out of um, Minneapolis, Oak Grove Capital, uh, kind of reached out and allowed me to join them in a couple of manners. I helped the principals analyze investment um, strategies on, on their own account. But also originated some mortgages for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. So I used that. I kind of went back into that defensive mode of having a little bit of a paycheck while I was still able to go out and and execute my my own business. Yeah, yeah,
1: interesting. Makes sense where you had all your money, you know, invested, and then. Well,
0: I just felt it. like you know I was I was certainly exposed, you know, and and you know I was covering all my bills and everything was fine, but um, I didn't have a whole lot socked away. Let's put it that way, right? Or if you find another
1: deal, it's starting to maybe you felt like well my investment base is getting like a little. Are sort of like fully invested, what's my next move? Right, it's right. It's interesting.
0: And is, I've heard, you know, um, yeah, I've heard several smart people say, you know, you, you make a lot of money when you have access to capital in the down market, right? And even though things were improving, if things had had another downturn or whatever, I didn't have any capital to take advantage of, you know, the next downturn,
1: right? And even by like 2015, it felt like the prices were high. That's what's in hindsight, wild. sure,
0: but things have run another seven years since then, right? right but what you know isn't this supposed to be like a seven-year economic <laughs> or real estate cycle you know so. all i know is real estate's cyclical i'm not going to call the next cycle but it feels like things are fully priced right now R- right or even but even in 2015 it was like it was you i was thinking that where i was buying deals and then well that's when yeah, i pivoted yeah. and started again pivot away from chicago and went into this whole new strategy or thesis of, of secondary tertiary markets because if you looked at multifamily cap rates between primary secondary and tertiary not only the difference between the Sun Belt and the Midwest, which was a huge delta in cap rate. But then you know Chicago to Minneapolis, Minneapolis to Kansas City, Kansas City to Des Moines, there's probably a 50 basis point premium cap rate every step down you went. And my view is in Des Moines, if you could buy a seven cap and that asset's trading for five in Chicago, that was a good relative trade to start buying Des Moines. So that was the pivot I made in 15. When it felt expensive here, that's when we, we started really, buying the assets that were rolled in to start Artisan Capital Group. And that makes all that thesis made it always made a lot of sense to me when I first
1: heard about it, or even a lot of the fundamentals in like Des Moines, it's better than Chicago,
0: yet it's trading at a discount
1: relative to the income.
0: It was, and now, you know, things change, right? Last deal we bid on and chased really hard in in suburban uh, Des Moines, there was 35 offers, most from California and New York. So that tells me that I'm not saying I was smart or, lucky but we were right on the thesis seven years ago and now what's the next one so yeah, as a as an investment company that's what we always try to do is find the edge or a little bit of um you know a strategy that maybe the the bulk of people are missing you know real estate you know i hate to say it it's it's a herd mentality and um we try to look the other way if, if everybody's going one direction okay let's look the other direction and what what are people missing and maybe, maybe they're not missing anything, or maybe they're running from something for a reason, but maybe there's opportunity in the other direction.
1: Right, and what's interesting too, if you have that business plan, that's it's, it's different to, it's to me, it seems like it's even, it's easier to raise money. I know it at first, if you're the first, whatever deal in Iowa for yeah. that group, it's I'm sure it wasn't easy, but. No, it wasn't, yeah. What's interesting is once you have that sort of really going though, I feel like now, hey, you have a unique idea that's working and you're coming to them where that, you know one the best example i have of that obviously harrison street here where they mm-hmm. you know right after the recession roll out with a we're going to focus on these recession resistant asset classes mm-hmm. you pitch all these institutional investors that are in the normal food groups office industrial multifamily, yeah. etc this is like something new yeah and you and it's a it's a great offering in terms of you know um in a way i mean it's more than this but you know putting your money in something else and sounding sounding smart and you know, so that that really resonated and they've killed it. Yeah. Doing that obviously. One yep. thing I was gonna almost joke about, it's interesting because I talked to let's say people that are newer in the business. Yeah, they've they've never seen like where the cap rates were different. Like so I joke like when I started, you'd go on a webinar with let's say Marcus and Milchab or C. Sure. Berry and they would have a matrix of the cap rates yep. doing what you're talking about. Chicago downtown is a mm-hmm. six cap, but the third ring out suburb, you know, Aurora yeah. it's an eight cap. Yeah. And then you go to Iowa, same, same thing. And it starts at an eight and then goes yep. up and then they're just used to like, Oh no, aren't they like, they should all basically be the same. Right. And it's different risk thresholds, different. Yeah. But it's interesting now to see, cause then, I mean, you guys were uh, definitely got in front of what turned out to be a big trend with people moving into
0: tertiary markets. Yeah, and I mean some of that was maybe propelled by the pandemic, but I also th- think the the thought process was right. And if we went in and made the trade, so to speak, we wanted to you know establish scale, and, and we were able to do that from 2000, you know, really 15, 16 to um, you know 19 uh, into the pandemic year of 2020, and had a good critical mass. And we went from we started the company. I, I rolled in a thousand units that I bought as a GP, and you know, Arson Capital Group started the end of 2017. We then bought, you know, basically a thousand units a year for a couple of years, um, and had you know critical mass. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One, because we wanted to drive operational efficiencies for our strategy, and and really be known as you know, if not the best, one of the best owner operators in the Upper Midwest, and a, a company with strong kind of institutional backgrounds and experience that are applied to a very specific strategy in, in a newer market. So. It was you know, far, fairly well thought out in, in that way. One
1: thing to jump in on, if you, so then you roll in a thousand units, those were acquired while you were working at Oak
0: Grove, right? Uh, yeah, Oak Grove sold the JLL. And that's another, I guess, kind of anecdote that I, I joke about, but I'd made the decision I wanted to be more entrepreneur, entrepreneur in my career. And Oak Grove was entrepreneurial, but then they sold the JLL, which is a great company. We work with JLL every day but jail is one of the biggest real estate companies right. in the world. And that's not the direction I wanted my career to go. I wanted to go more entrepreneurial. But I also, yeah. I just
1: wanted to highlight the working hard element. Cause now yeah. you had said
0: you well,
1: were th- maybe th- around 35 when you started buying again in Chicago. And this is now almost four years later. So you're almost 40 and you're still, you're more or less still working two jobs. That's what I wanted to point out
0: where you, yeah. bought, you
1: on the side bought
0: a thousand units. I've never yeah, I don't know if that. I'd advise that. Yeah, yet. I was I was fully transparent with with JLL, and and um, in fact, they were very supportive to you know my future plans, and I think it was a good win win because I I certainly um, you know helped the the JLL team as they were uh, expanding their multifamily practice and outreach. But um, yeah, I I didn't see another way to do it. I you know. Um,
1: Right. Yeah. It's if you start with at zero, then all this time where you're buying the first ones, that's just money coming out of your pocket on your own money, your own living and costs and running the company if you have any employees or overhead. Yep. But I I just want to point that out because if you would just sort of casually look and go, oh, wow, 800 million of property must be nice. But it's like, yeah, the first 80 million was already bought when we started the company. But more of the point is there was 20 years where you basically worked two jobs. I mean, from t- I age guess I've 20, never thought of it that way, age 20 yeah. to 40,
0: pretty much. Yeah, I guess I've never thought of it that way. But yeah, that's, that's and
1: right. then and then you, a couple, one time you went out and then you got all your money invested, and then you went, you went back to yeah. uh, they'll just call it a job, even though it's, it's lending, it's more of a Eat what you kill type deal, but yeah, you know where you make another pivot. Where you got to have a, you made a, had to make a lot of pivots and and work really hard to get even artisan started. Is my point.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, my career is not a straight. I don't think anybody's career is really a straight line. Maybe some people's are, but mine was not a straight line. It was uh, once I kind of yeah had some experience underneath me and realized that you know housing was where I wanted to spend my career. I kind of had a vague vision of what we could do. And when i say we because i i knew whatever i'm envisioning was going to take you know a team a right. village to get it done and but i knew what we could probably accomplish um but sometimes you you know you got to take a step sideways sometimes you even have to take a step back but you still need to know where, where you're going and you got to pivot and you know whether it was going back to work with oak grove and jll or whatnot i knew what my end game i knew what i wanted my end game to be you just had to you know work to get there right so
1: but just to highlight that because then even now when you said to be rolled in a thousand units i was like wait that's all still done while you're doing something else yeah no that's other units were in chicago so yeah that's
0: that's a great point yeah that's that's, that's a that's great point point. and i, I want to say too um you know those assets i was able to buy really in 2016 to roll into artisan you know, that was, that came from a capital relationship that when I was still buying the small deals, doing friends and family, you know, I, and I wasn't very good necessarily at putting myself out there while I had conviction in the assets we were buying, the plans, I'd never really had to raise outside capital before. And, you know, a little luck, but also a lot of hard work and networking, you know, met, um, an individual and, um, a really an equity source that had some, um, some capacity behind them that one believed in a guy without a business plan or w- without a business card or a company to buy these assets. And I really give them a lot of credit and whether, again, probably a little luck to, to find that capital relationship that allowed me to, to get those seed assets. And that was but, an individual. Um, that was the it was individual behind a, a large company and, and, you know, became more than just the individual, but, um, there was a nice equity source. Uh, that helped get me started. Yeah, because then that eventually grew, though, where he knew other people. Then that's right. They came in the deal with him. Right, that's or right. introduced And they're still a great relationship. They they help us with some co-investment opportunities from time to time and, you know, want to do a lot more with them. But I will say I want to give that you know them credit because it, it really helped me get started.
1: Yeah, and too, and it's interesting how things like that snowball where you have them come in on one deal and you're not sure what's going to be the next thing and then you find another deal and then he pulls into whatever coworkers or his neighbor. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden it's interesting now that actually plays out. So it's funny how things can uh, spiral like that. Yeah. So then let's, I think it'd be real interesting to hear about artisan today. Sure. You know, so then what, uh, so we have the strategy laid out, you know, where it's class B multifamily in Iowa. Initially that was initially up. And you, What? when you run me through what you guys are doing today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, one, we're up to 12 people. I mean, the biggest thing I'm, I, I take the most pride in is the team we've been able to put together. Um, when it was time to start a company, I didn't want to do it by myself. Um, I lobbied, uh, a gentleman I used to work with Mike Perry to help me as my, my co-founder and Mike's good at a lot of things that I'm not good at. You know, I think I'm good at, you know, capitalizing a deal and finding investment opportunities and, and networking with investors and, and the kind of the front end to get a deal closed, you know, operations, investor relations, asset management, project oversight, that's where success is had. And Mike was uh, that he was my asset manager when I was at the Walton Levin entity. And he, I always said, I need somebody like Mike Perry. I need somebody like Mike Perry. And finally, I just, you know, begged Mike Perry to join me. And after the fourth time, he, he finally said yes. And uh, uh, we were off to the races. So it was the two of us working in a, a co-working space um, in the loop. Uh, my goal at the time was thinking, okay, five years at, forward, which would be basically this year or next year, I thought we'd get i hoped that we'd get to three or four thousand units and have like a half a dozen employees well you know things started snowballing we're now at 12 people and just i have six thousand units but i think we can scale with the team we have but beyond mike um first couple acquisition guys that joined me Whitney enabling and greg marks uh with focuses on market rate greg is student housing but you know really smart guys that were able to come in kind of see the vision of what artisan could be and allow them to be entrepreneurial um and how they work and operate and go find good deals uh, Sean Fogarty, uh, good friend and colleague, joined as a partner in 2019. Uh, brought on in-house counsel, somewhat recently, Tiffany Harper from um, formerly with Magellan Development. Uh, Marcus Chelson, who I mentioned earlier, who is my you know, lifelong friend and uh, original business partner back in Cedar Falls, um, you know, wanted a career change, uh, so to speak, and, and joined as you know, boots on the ground in Iowa, overseeing at you know asset management, and he's elevated to run all of our asset management at this point. So. Um, who I met, we got a couple of young guys, uh, Dan and Ian, who help you know r- grind numbers and help on asset management, which has been fantastic. Ali Zerbel oversees all of our projects, uh, whether it's big or small. She's uh, our utility uh, knife, so to speak. Um, who am I missing? Uh, Greg, uh, um, Jake Gantz just joined us as an asset manager as well, and uh, I think that gets us to twelve. Yeah, just really pr- proud of the team that we've we've put together here, and um.
1: um yeah, i'm sure it's interesting you're spending all your time now but really building the platform and you know running running the thing where and i'm experiencing a similar thing i don't have 12 people but you know four that work for me and full time that work on the deal
0: doing and it's interesting where it's been you know a while since i underwrote my own deal you know that's one thing you know people always ask me what the, like the biggest challenge of, of growing a company is and you know you don't really think of it when you start the company but you gotta get, pe- get the right people in their places and there's just so much to do on a on a daily basis. So we've got good people that are kind of executing, and whatnot. Um, I try to be somewhat cognizant of of tuning into how people you know are are motivated, and and try to you know periodically touch base with everybody just to make sure that we're on the right track and that they're you know getting um, what they want out of the job and that it's you know fulfilling for them. Um, not something I thought about in October of you know 2017 when we started the company, but a critical piece of the component. So. Uh, that doesn't actually come natural to me but i recognize that i want to create a good environment for people to to work and to have you know a lot of uh, satisfaction in their job and not easy to do when you're growing so fast and you've got a lot of people working very hard but um you know it's something i'm I'm, I'm focused on and trying to make sure you know people are are um are you know are in, in the right spot so to speak yeah you know the other thing is is what our strategy is i mean i just mentioned the original strategy was going to Iowa and I feel like that's kind of played out for now so it's what's next and we took a step back um certainly in COVID and analyzed a few different things we think suburban Chicago is a great place to buy right now um not a lot of people are uh are, are looking in Chicago um and it's the third largest city in the United States and while we've got fiscal headwinds and real estate tax challenges on how you underwrite those and and whatnot Uh, Certainly some headline risk, um, but we think Chicago is a pretty good contrarian play right now and it's in our backyard. So we like that. And then student housing, we feel like is trading a little wonky right now from a national standpoint. Um, Pre-pandemic, there were student housing assets that were trading basically in par on a cap rate basis with with, uh, apartments. And we don't think that should be the case. There should be a little, you know, premium there, 25, 50 basis points. But in a lot of cases, we're seeing 100 basis points spread between student and apartments. And we just think that's a little bit of the edge that we were talking about earlier that we're trying to capitalize on right now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Had a rough year
1: with the COVID and, you know, people trying to break leases. So then that disrupts the whole market. That's
0: scary. That, that, you know, that veers, uh, that that, um, makes things uncertain. And um, whenever there's uncertainty, you know. Opportunity. There can be opportunity, right? Right. So that's what we try to try to exploit and focus on. Yeah, because the
1: other day someone was asking me, "What's the? Why does someone even want to invest in student housing? Just because obviously there's just
0: more management headaches, and uh, we'll just say repairs needed." Which is why there should be that that spread, right? I mean, it's not it's not an apartment deal. There's a, it's a different asset type. It's a different you know capital um you know at you know intensive asset but actually on the flip side i
1: would say there might not even need to be a spread depending where i could make the case there shouldn't be it's just different where yeah the rents uh, you're gonna yeah you have more headaches but that's our in repairs but that's already factored in should be in your, your expenses so right. that's you're just we're just putting a cap rate on the noi now which already has that baked in and you could say the rents are high for what it is but that's already again still yeah. factored in the price but the real like thing that's great with student housing and I had four student housing assets and owned two or three of them still during the 2008-9 uh, downturn my rents never dropped every year they went up even 2008-9-10 yeah. there's no recession these are at UW-Madison and mm-hmm. UW-Madison let's say class B minus yeah. like student rentals which is what I had sure so then to me that's so that's what I told them where I was like the the reason people go in that is it's just not correlated with the economy necessarily
0: it's correlated with how the school's doing almost how yeah. colleges are going to do well and the interesting thing about students sometimes when the economy is bad universities do better because more people are going back to to school
1: right so so i feel like the risk almost in student housing is more making sure you're going to be at a college that's still growing yeah and and not because i i will say with student student housing like some of these colleges where they're you know, at risk for going under if it's like a bottom rung school.
0: Yeah. And this is getting so expensive to go to college now where people are gonna realize. It. A couple things there. We absolutely focus on enrollment trends, right? I mean, you look at freshman enrollment, hoping that that's painting a good picture that freshman enrollment's up, that they're gonna be there for three years and, and a nice trend from there. I hate to say it, but you know, we agree some of the directional schools, and I went to Northern Iowa, um, you know, are probably gonna be in trouble. I think some states need to figure out how to keep those schools how to market those schools better or create some sort of um competitive advantage for those schools probably you know cheaper tuition is water. was that private or public northern iowa yeah it was public yeah it was the third public school in iowa
1: yeah but even for that at least cost-wise to still makes sense the ones where i'm i'm sure there was something comparable <laughs> sure where yeah. and i know the ones in like the milwaukee area because that's where i'm from and yep. where it's 40 50 grand a year to go to now and it's you know i don't know the 15th best college in the
0: state you know where it's like at what point is it not worth spending 200 grand right and those are you know and again maybe you know there's some opportunity there if you're willing to take a risk but we're not going to make that bet we're pre-pandemic we had a different strategy we were looking at kind of secondary universities now we feel you know we want to look at the power five conferences top tier universities focused on schools with good enrollment trends but student housing supply can change in the market pretty quickly, and we see some some uh, markets that have, you know the supply pipeline has just has just crushed the market because you know the right. demand is somewhat fixed, if you will, and and it can only absorb so much supply. But you know, you, you analyze all those things, which is why on the students front, we have more of a national approach because there's just not as many markets um, that you know we're going to try to enter. Um, but it's been a good market for us, or a good a good strategy for us, and we're pretty optimistic about our prospects there how are you how are you sourcing deals today that's a great question um maybe i'll start with how i used we historically have sourced deals and when we we got started really in 15 and 16 specifically in iowa i saw inefficiencies in how assets were sold in the state of iowa that i wanted to exploit right a a lot of mom and pop ownerships a lot of off-market transactions a lot of you know street brokers or or kind of the you know uh, the 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 bird dog brokers would bring me deals direct, and I love that inefficiency, yeah. right? I think the the goal is you buy inefficient, and then after when we're ready to sell, you hire the best broker for the job, and you make sure a hundred people see it, and you you know really you know market the heck out of your sale. But I like the inefficiency of buying deals. So, and I I went down the list of our um our REO our real estate zone our real estate owned. I bet you we bought half off market or quasi half market, and You know, it's getting harder and harder to do. One, to find those opportunities. And especially in a hot market right now, everybody knows that, you know, you put it out there, there's going to be probably a bidding war. So historically, it's been more inefficient ways of of sourcing assets.
1: One, One question to jump in that's, I would... And we've done something similar we when we redid our website i counted up how many deals were like a repeat broker mm-hmm. fully off market or repeat seller mm-hmm. so i don't have the breakout of just yeah. full off market but it was 80 percent of the properties i bought were there one go. or all of those three things and but most of them really were through a broker still it wasn't I've, I've only bought a couple properties where it was like i like one of them i literally called my the neighbor property yeah, and sure. he sold to me eventually but even on that he eventually hired a broker actually yeah because okay. he didn't yeah. know what it was worth and then they we're going to put it up for sale. And then that broker contacted us. Sure. But any, anyways, um, what, what have you done where, and this is something where I, I have actually I have, let's say if I bought 40 properties, I've sold less than 10 of them. So mm-hmm. I have normally I'm selling with the broker I bought with. Yep. But in these, let's say, say I'm in the same boat as you, some of these situations where it's like a the person is not in their wheelhouse, really. Yeah. And they, but they did bring us the deal. Yeah. And usually you want to list with who brought you the deal.
0: Yeah. How do you manage that? What do you you know, we're selling our first round of assets right now. Um, and in some cases we've had we've chosen brokers that didn't necessarily bring us the deal. We view it as we're going to you know, we're in this for the long haul. And you know, brokers that, that that bring us deals, we execute, we buy, and that's a successful transaction for them. And there's really no guarantee about the sale we're going to evaluate the sale process based on what's best for our investors and the asset and ultimately you know us as sponsors and if it happens to be the same broker great um but if it doesn't we feel there's a better broker to market and sell the deal we're going to hire the best athlete for the job right you know it's this is a we're we're all you know big boys in this game big boys and big girls um you know you've got to bring your a game every day and if you're not the right one to sell a deal, we're going to hire somebody else. And but what? I also think that 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 shouldn't prevent people from you know sh- continuing to show us opportunities because we're very fair on the buy side too, and we we do our best. We pride ourselves on on trying to execute and doing doing what we say we're going to do. Right, and that's something where I haven't. I I will.
1: I, I think on all the ones where I've sold, it's been with a a broker where it made sense to go with uh, yeah. that. Also sold it to us, I think. But a couple of them we didn't. We used somebody else we thought was better but it's, it was honestly, it's honestly, it's a tough conversation with the broker sure. that, you know, brought you the deal. Cause they, a lot of them are working under the assumption, like if I brought you the deal, I should list it. Not based on it necessarily mm-hmm. what their abilities are at that point, just sort of, that's like
0: mm-hmm. a courtesy. I get it. And we would certainly give that broker the opportunity to, you know, evaluate the deal, give us their marketing proposal, their value, and you know, who, who, and they're thinking they're going to sell it to, you know, their potential investor list and, um, you know, I also think it's a little bit of an old school mentality that, you know, just cause you brought it, you're going to sell it. You know, I think you got to bring your best every day. And if you're not the, you know, it's a tough conversation, but don't yeah. be afraid of having a tough conversation. If you really think that there's a better broker, here's why, you know, and right. you know, have that conversation.
1: Right. Cause that's, yeah, that's something that I've ran into, but I know a lot of other people are thinking about cause I just, I sold three deals last year and, mm-hmm. and two of them, we used a new broker.
0: Well, we, we're, we're very cognizant too of look we've got a lot of really good relationships on the broker side and at some point you got to spread it around a little bit you know make sure that you know everybody gets a deal that you know at least groups that you think you're going to transact with you know this, this is a four and a half year old company. We're going to be in business for a long time. so we want to make sure that we we have you know multiple good relationships on that front, right? Are you guys managing your own properties? Or what Great you- question. Great question. So when we started the company, that was one thing I always got asked. I mean, if we are fully uh, vertically integrated and have our own management company and you know, I'm in a co-working space with two or three other people, I'm like, that's the extent of our company. Like, this is all I can think about right now, let alone yeah. hiring a maintenance guy on a 400 year property in Iowa. So we evolved over time. And frankly, we probably made the move to create our management company sooner than I ever would have expected. But in 2019, we tried some third party managers that just weren't managing the way we would manage. And with our institutional backgrounds, we're very hands-on asset managers and it was pointed out to me once that the way we asset manage, we were already doing half the management. Yeah. Job. So that was kind of like a light bulb situation. for me. it was like, okay, that's, that's a really good point. I've realized that in some articles right. too, where I and, feel like, Except for the
1: hiring, we're basically doing this yeah. okay, We're we're setting the rents. We're reminding you this thing's not on the. You said it's on the market. It's actually not when yeah. you go on the internet. So it's you. We need you need to step it up. Where pretty soon it would just it would have been the same amount of time to yep.
0: just yep. say that to the person sitting across from yeah. you, like,
1: hey, your listing's not showing up. Yep, it would be.
0: So for me, I think it was kind of a mental barrier of like maybe being intimidated by the concept of having a management company and employing. I mean, if you own a four hundred unit property, that's probably eight employees right there. Um, which to me, you know, seemed like a thankless, not a thankless, cause you want good people at your property, but I never really wanted to be in the HR business, right? That's not my cup of tea. But what we did is we partnered with Tina Smothers, a great gal in the state of Iowa, who has really strong, deep uh, experience in property management and had started her own management company. And we were able to bring our scale of a portfolio to Tina and, and let her uh, run the management company. We're partners in the management company, have a lot of input um but you know she's been able to scale a great uh, great company we probably self manage i should know the exact number but 3500 to 4000 units within our portfolio um we self manage um and we'll probably grow i mean originally started with uh, the state of iowa and now we're uh, taking over management of our 800 units in Kansas City and Lawrence nice. and we'll see from there but i still think using third party management in markets like chicago makes a ton of sense um you gotta be good at what you're what you're good at and recognize what you're not good at. And, you know, we're good and well known in the state of Iowa. I think we can attract good talent um and you know, have the right people at our properties. But Chicago's a different game and student housing is a different game. You know, um, we just bought a deal in Reno, Nevada. For us to self manage in Reno, Nevada and track the right property manager and, and maintenance supervisor, that's a taller task from three, two thousand miles away.
1: Right. Or so, learning the other thing too, people don't think about. And it's obvious once you get in a few markets, you also got to learn all the laws in that market. Sure, which you figured out in Iowa over time, and you know Chicago, I'm sure. But then you buy your first deal in Reno. What's at least supposed to look like there? Right, and you know you have the right have the right licenses in place, right, I and mean, all those things. So, and really, so yeah, you brought that in house, but it was also not only once you have the scale units, you know, you the right unit count, let's say, but the right sort of other people, at the, let's say, the corporate level who could. Who could do that,
0: right? And Tina brought on um Josh and Kelsey and uh, Devin. We've got a really good uh, team of, you know, really leadership, senior leadership um, within the company to help, you know, provide the support to the properties that that we really need. And that doesn't happen overnight. And you know, frankly, three years ago, I, I thought that was going to be very difficult to attain. And another thing I take a lot of pride of that we're able to attract really good people to join the company. So, but the other thing that led to us bringing management in house, in hindsight, is. You know you can put your pro forma together and you have good you know good basis for your assumptions and your opex and certain things and you know if you hire a third-party manager and they're not thinking of of your budget the way an owner does they're thinking of it you know a lot of times what's the path of least resistance you know replace versus repair on some some mm-hmm. items and that sort of thing and um we realize we can only pass the buck so long to our investors right by saying you know the manager missed it property management missed it here they're running heavy and at some point you got to grab the the wheel and control your own destiny and that's ultimately what we end up doing we made a management change that didn't pan out uh, brought in a more of a national into iowa and weren't able to get them to see operations the way a true local owner operator would and should so we we made the decision to to take over and it's been a lot of work but um it was the right move and then
1: you're your part, your partner's name is Sean in the West Southern.
0: Mike. Sean Fogarty, Mike Perry Mike. are my two um,
1: partners in Arsen Capital Group. But then Mike, so he initially was he he sort of ran point on
0: even bringing in Tina and all that, or yeah. Well, Tina else? was a relationship that that I I'd had for a, a long time. I bought a 14 unit deal in Tina, and she was the property manager on that. Um, but you know, I, Mike was is is kind of the glue. I mean, everything operations, you know, Mike um, has a, his his fingerprint on. Um, to the point where we recognized we needed to elevate, not only because he deserved it, but it was the right move to, m- for Marcus to oversee asset management, of the assets themselves. I mean, we have a 12 person company and you know, $800 million of capitalization. Mike has a lot on his plate from just company operations, from tax returns and, and investor relations and all that. So it was just kind of a matter of, okay, as you scale a company, you realize the roles that need to be filled and, and, and try to get people in the right place. So, and Mike's, you know, the way his mind works, he's very ops oriented and very detailed. So he's the perfect guy to run that. Sean, who joined um, from um, HFF, I mean, Sean ran investment sales for HFF alongside Marty O'Connell and Matt Lawton for like 15 years, right? So he's sold billions of dollars of deals in Chicago. Um, Great person to join, because I think he wanted to get on the principal side of of the business for his last phase of his career. Uh, from Iowa originally he opened up our Des Moines office so he was a perfect addition and you know Sean and I overlap in a lot of ways we both have good kind of capital relationships and you know underwriting and investment um, you know skill set but you know we've got a lot of right. a lot of units a lot of deals running right so it's it's good to have him uh you know help steer the ship as well
1: right and then once Sean joined then you could move more to like let's say like CEO type
0: stuff now not so much maybe yeah we don't really use C titles. I mean, right. we're the three partners, and we all. There's a lot of responsibilities, and we kind of each take our our responsibility. But um, you know, I, I will think. I do think that I probably think strategy a little bit more, um, you know, than the others. Because again, I want to make sure we're always kind of, you know, the front edge of the curve on an investment trend and not thinking, you know, reactively. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I'm able to kind of go up to 30 or 40,000 feet and think about that because we have such a good team put together to execute the business. Exactly.
1: Where you have someone who's able to do the operations and then you brought on, if you're a broker, I mean, you're, I'm just assuming your bread and butter is the deals. And then, so now you got someone who's that, who's an actual owner. That's right. And, you know, and. So very seasoned. So that's, that's right. Yeah. Now, now you're yeah. freed
0: up to right, think about some at 30,000 feet instead of yeah. the closing next week. Well, and you know, you've got to get in front of existing capital partners, you've got to get in front of new capital partners. I mean, that involves travel, that involves a lot of conversations and and really talking ideas and and you know, investment philosophies and that sort of thing. And um, you know, that's the other thing we haven't really touched on yet. But, you know, to capitalize eight hundred million dollars of real estate I and mean, we've we've raised two hundred million dollars of, of equity and um, that's been a tall task. I mean, what I, people ask me how I've done it and I always say the hard way, you know, cause I don't, it's, it hasn't been easy, but it's been uh, we've got good partners that have come into each deal and we made the decision when we started the company that our value add was to go find a good deal and have the courage to put that deal under control, which means you're signing a contract, you're posting earnest money, you're spending real dollars, but that if it was truly a good deal, we'll find the right capital partner for that. And. That's the direction we had to go because you can have all the good conversations with investors in the world and they might like, Hey Drew, I love you. But until there's a deal to focus on and talk about, there's really nothing to talk about. So And today also
1: everyone's so busy that even if you have a deal that you could get under contract, they're these LPs are so busy that you gotta have it under contract really to have like a to get their attention. Real conversation. They could give a quick look for ten minutes. Hey, if you get under contract, we would this looks like something
0: we do, but we didn't we're not really looking too hard. Right. This is a thing you might be one of 20 people offering. in my lp audience for a five million dollar deal which we were not doing small deals anymore is completely different than a 50 million dollar deal right so we i needed to know what what capital investment i was solving for and you know the, the deal dictates that I mean, you know where's the deal located what's the equity check size so you know we'd go find good deals and then we would have sleepless nights until we found the right partner but again we've we've found really good partners and and really happy with the groups that have have invested alongside us we hope we hope that they're happy you know with us as well um and looking forward to you know keeping keeping the ship going so then let's say take me through raising the money on let's say your first
1: larger deal where it went from let's call it like a friends and family raise or just even from individuals to now you're dealing with a uh, one check LP or however that looked a family. Yeah,
0: I'll, maybe I'll tell two examples because one, the first deal that really kind of got us started. Again, I was a one man band and found a twenty eight million dollar deal that um, made a lot of sense. One of the inve- individuals that invested in my small deals had expressed interest in kind of my new strategy or whatever. So I went down and met with them and and kind of laid everything out. And I think it was a six and a half million dollar equity check that I needed and I was feeling him out for like 10% of that. I, I thought if you give me a 10% commitment, I think I can go raise the rest. And after you know half hour meeting turned into a two hour meeting, he said, okay, call me tomorrow, but I, I think I'm just gonna do it. And I sat there for a second, I said, awesome. And then I didn't realize what he was gonna do. I said, are you gonna do the 10% or are you gonna do the whole thing? He's like, I, I think I'll, I can do the whole thing. So I had to contain my excitement um, until I, you know, got into the elevator bank and started high fiving random, random strangers on the street because that was what I needed to do to get the deal done. I knew once I had the equity, the debt was solved for, and we could take this thing down. Um, so that, you know, that was kind of the first deal of size. And again, um, you know, effective networking and and I think presenting ideas and and you know that deal. Um, performed well. I wish it would have performed better. We, you know, he learned a lot on that first deal, but really got us going. And then, um,
1: was that his first deal with you? It wasn't that Uh,
0: we did some small deals here in Chicago, but this was the first deal that would have rolled into what became artisan.
1: But then how for him, normally he was putting in like, a couple hundred thousand or what it was because this was a surprise obviously. yeah uh
0: originally that was the case on you know the small deals we we're buying here in chicago
1: right because he's coming yeah. in kind of like a syndication there's other people there's slots sort yeah. of so to speak yeah. so you'd say i'm good yeah. for a yeah. hundred or two or three yeah. hundred and then then you meet with him on this and he likes the strategy
0: and this yeah so yeah. that's and then they did the then he uh expanded it, the relationship to some of his partners and we end up doing another six or 700 units, and that's when we started Artisan Capital Group and really we're off the races. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since then, maybe another typical deal, well, there is no typical deal, really. I mean, every deal is unique, right, in its own way. But, you know, I think more recently, we're looking at 40 to 50, $60 million total capitalizations. So my equity checks are 10 to um, 15, maybe $20 million. And, you know, we've been at this now for a while. We've got some good relationships. So you kind of start with, your list of existing partners or groups that you've come really close with, and you present the information. You kind of say, "Here, we just went out on a deal today with kind of a new investment. You know, here, here's here's the deal. Here's the snapshot. Here's here's why we think it's a good deal. Here's the risks. Here's our underwriting. Um, here's the capital need. Here's the returns. You know, and um, we again, we've got a couple partners that you know we'd like to do more business with. I think they'd like to do more business with us. It just becomes a matter of you know, do they have capacity at the time?" But you know, we're also always trying to talk to new partners. You know, I feel like we've gotten over the hump as a company. We're, you know, no longer a pure startup. Um, you know, we're in our sophomore and junior year, so to speak. We've got a good team on the pl- we got business cards, we got office space. Yeah, go. Um, and I, again, as investment tra- trends have have changed, I think we're maybe viewed as a company that saw a, a strategy early on and went in and exploited it and, and executed, and that gets the attention of a lot of you know larger capital um, you know, check writers. Right. And we'd like to, you know, tap into some of that.
1: But then, so then the first deal with like, with a, let's say, so that's an individual, then what was the first, cause once you're jumping into these, like a $28 million deal, where, um, where the yeah. earnest money come from
0: on that one? Well, back up? you know, that one, the seller was somewhat unsophisticated. So I was able to control a $28 million deal with only a hundred thousand dollars of earnest money. And that's not typical, but and frankly, I probably had to sell some stock and like a hundred grand was always able to put together. But it was your money. It okay. was my okay. money. And, but I, I knew once I controlled the deal that gave me leverage and I was confident enough that I could spend $40,000 on due diligence. And, you know, if I had to walk at the end of DD and eat the four, 40 grand, I would have done that. But I felt, i confident that I could raise the capital and, and we did. Yeah, so. and
1: cause then the, obviously the earnest money at that point, that's non, that's refundable the it's deal, refundable so. through 30
0: days but i knew that even after 30 days there was going to be a lot of you know a lot of moving pieces and i still could stub my toe so no I, I you write that check you know hoping it comes back or hoping it gets you know contributed to the deal but you know that's a risk as an entrepreneur that you've got to you know you got to ante up you know you got to get in the in the batter's box and you know it's been i think maybe your next question is as we've grown how do you continue to you know capitalize earnest money and Um, and not just earnest money. I mean, it's pursuit costs because we've had to walk from a couple of deals for findings in due diligence that we could not, you know, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our capital partners to put them in good deals. And if you find something in due diligence, whether it's an environmental issue or God forbid COVID creeps in and, you know, you've got a deal that you're working on, a student housing deal that you don't want, you know, it doesn't make sense to buy in the light of of COVID, you gotta be prepared to walk. And that, that stings whenever you do that. We've only had to do that a couple of times, but you know, you can't be afraid to walk away from a little money because if you don't, the the, the alternative of is a bigger mistake. Yeah, you know and you're I mean? you're working right. yourself for free. You put right. people in a bad deal. Right, it's, it hurts your track record. Right. But on the earnest money front, you know, I'm able to cobble together enough, you know, to personally fund some earnest money while we were growing. um You know, the partners of of artists would contribute. If it was a big deal, we would go to our um, our LP in some cases and kind of explain the situation and, you know, oftentimes not often, but in handful of times, they helped fund some larger earnest money checks. And then, you know, what's kind of a trend right now or has been for a while is, you know, we're, we're the sponsor. We're good at hunting the deal, but there's a lot of good co-GP funds out there and investors that like to work with groups like us that understand that there's a capital need beyond what a typical operator might have for earnest money or, or that sort of thing. And, Um, We've worked with some co-GPs that have funded earnest money to get us there as well. What's interesting you don't really think about is a lot of times, you know, uh, acquisitions are chunky, right? You might go through a few months where you don't buy anything, then all of a sudden you're awarded three deals. Right. So it's not just five or six hundred thousand dollars for one deal. It's that could be two or three deals in a row or, you know, stacked on top of each other. So all of a sudden you need to have a million and a half, you know, you tack on some lender deposits and that sort of thing. I mean, it can be. Um, you need a lot of liquidity for that. Yeah, I mean, even last month in total, we had like two million dollars of deposits out. Two of those deals close. So good for you. you Got that money back. Almost, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, but and then we still have a million two out in one. Yeah. So that and the other thing, I we should talk too. I'm curious. You've got a line of credit. We were able to um, work with a local bank in Iowa that we've done a lot with, and they understand our business model, and, and we can now draw on a line of credit for some of that. Um, what's the What's the collateral on that?
1: My name, okay, and my partner's names. No, and I have not been able to do that. One thing that's very interesting with how a real estate business is set up for a second, if it was all just in one, let's say corporation or LLC, it would be much easier to make a loan like that. But what's what maybe people don't realize? Every deal is in a separate LLC. Yeah. So it kind of stands on its own as a business, and then those all have you know loans on the property that are on that, and then mm-hmm. you're not allowed to just put a additional loan or sign, you know, the, sh- whatever the equity shares on a different loan is collateral. Yeah. It's not allowed on your senior loan on the first, on the loan on the property. So it's a hard business to get a line of credit like that, where if it was yeah. a different kind of business, you would go, okay, we have all this income in one company and this would be the collateral. And every year yeah. it's been like this, this is really more just like a collection of yeah fees and promotes and different things or things you just own directly coming in. And so that I'd be yeah, curious. I mean, that's, that's interesting. And that's a bank where you've, that wasn't your first loan with them.
0: No, but we've done a lot with them and they have the majority of our deposits. They've really become a pretty good resource for us. But to your point, you're absolutely right. I mean, every asset is a single purpose, uh, single asset LLC or every property is owned by an SPE and you know, that's done for a lot of different reasons from your capital side, your investor side, but also from the loan side, the agencies, Freddie Fannie or any lender really wants to just lend to a single entity. And liability too. Yeah, right, right. Um, so the value of your enterprise, I mean, arson Capital Group, you know, you could argue doesn't have a ton of value, but you know, as we've grown I and mean, we have income, you know, fees from our asset management fees or, you know, uh, distributions from the property management company. So we, we I mean, there's a, there's, some fees or some income to model to say, okay, there is a hypothetical value to ours and capital group, right. which I firmly there believe is just because of the platform we've created and the strategy that we've we've been able to execute and and um, performance. So there's a value to our company. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're still signing personally on these things. So if you know if uh, we lose hundred grand of earnest money for whatever reason, you know, we're not going to let the the bank write that off, and we're going right. to make have to make it right. Right. But at least it's a funding source where it is, it is yeah. Be- Access to capital like that is huge. I mean, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of whether you have net worth there. It's it's liquidity. You know, do you have the liquidity at the time?
1: Right. Because yeah, even if you have a on the deals where maybe you've been able to split earnest money with an LP or they contributed it, who if that got lost, like who's that on in terms of the repayment? You
0: know, we it? we uh, um, it's a discussion up front, right? And and we've been able to do it. Um, sometimes we'll say, look, we understand our deal investment deal isn't baked. So even though we're only gonna be 10% of the, you know, the capital going in, maybe maybe the liability is 50-50. I don't know how other operators have done, it. I'd actually be curious what other guys say, but other times we've been able to do it at our um, investment ratio of 90-10. You know, if, if our deal's baked with that, that JV partner and we need a hundred grand, you know, the liability is 10 to us, 90 to them, because they understand the situation, right. but, you know, I don't know that that's, I think that's the exception and not the rule. I think a lot of times is, Hey guys, we need this money. It's protected. You know, we're not going to let it go hard until everybody's aware of what's and going and the deal fully baked. We just, you know, we can contribute half. Can you guys contribute half? And that's kind of been the way it's going. Yeah.
1: On. And on stuff that I've saw other operators doing or things we've worked on, it really depends on the how much information everybody has, where mm-hmm. to your point, if ever, if they're fully in the loop, yeah. They're probably fine splitting 50, 50 or 90, 10, but if yep. they were just a truly passive person who is this out of the yeah, mix. Yeah. You can't put that their yeah. money at risk without them being fully up to speed as to what's going on. Yeah. So then that's why there's not really like a set way. That's why if you were you're right, whatever you've done or I've done, it's just been deal by deal. If that yeah. LP is as in the loop as we are, right. Maybe going 90, 10 on it yeah. makes sense. But if they don't, if they're just kind of totally out of it, like I'll be, I'll put in this money if you need it early, but then, if it's lost, we need to pay it all back, yeah. and we've done it kind of
0: every which way too. Yeah. So that's, um, I will say something. for the, the majority of 2018, 19, and 20, I think whatever I would have had in a you know a IRA account or a brokerage account or investment account was sitting in an escrow account in in earnest money. I mean, right. I just knew that to get the company going, you know, I had to sacrifice, and it was it was protected in most cases. But I just had to have that money be prepared to sit in right. earnest money accounts as opposed to my right or working capital for the
1: platform because what people don't realize too you see what's they'd ask what's your co-investment in this deal and you're also investing some money but what's interesting is well I have 200,000 of earnest money out and then we had to make a 75,000 thousand dollar loan deposit and we've we've racked up 40,000 of other bills you yep. all those last two if, if we cancel then I just lose 115,000 or whatever that added up to it mm-hmm. and that's I'm out and then also you have a platform and if there's 12 people working there, I mean, that's, you know, over, uh, you know, I can just do the math in my head, you know, a hundred thousand plus a month of just money being spent on something. And then, um, you know, that's, if there's, that sounds great when there's fees rolling in and deals are selling, but it's not a guarantee that there's a, you know, a a deal tomorrow. And then also it's tough for our businesses. You have gotta be making the right decisions for the investors. So if there's a thing like COVID hits, the best thing you can do is be
0: canceling deals, but you're still paying for everybody. And now you're losing all this pursuit money. Yeah, I mean, that's the cost of doing business, right? I mean, that's, you know, um, if you have bad luck like that and a string of those, um, you know, you might not be in business, but you know, you just gotta underwrite a deal or two a year for whatever reason, you're gonna have some pursuit cost um, and hope you win more than you lose. Right, but I think people don't really, grasp that
1: unless until you're like in the seat yeah yeah because i'm in that too and it's where you could go uh you know almost why couldn't you throw more money in the deal and it's like well we have millions of dollars earnest money out yeah and we're paying for all these people and you know it's like it's not as simple as like yeah i just you just have this bucket of money with nothing no no expenses coming up or needs because the worst thing you do is be like cool i'll put in Whatever, all my money in this one deal. Then another deal rolls around, and now what we don't, we can't pay for the employees or yeah, we talk
0: as we were growing and we're still growing. But we talk a lot with our investors about that. Is you know we want to create. It takes a lot of overhead to get the right people on the team and you know have them show up and and be motivated every day. And we'd love to put more money into deals, and we're at a point where we are putting larger checks in the deals. But we're putting every deal we invest in, and it's meaningful for us, right? It's not a token amount. It's a meaningful check. But sometimes, I mean, especially as we've done larger deals. As a percentage of the overall equity, it might not look like a lot. And and the part of the reason is to your point is we've got a lot of of overhead to cover as a company. Um, and maybe that equation is different five years from now. We can put you know more percentage into the deals. But um, you know we got a lot a lot of mouths to feed and want to make sure that we're doing that because. It is in the best service of the investment at the end of the day to have our team put together. Right. Yeah. That's not going to help any if we're running out of money on the right. operating company. That's right.
1: What, what were you doing then for, for loan guarantees? Cause just to kind of yep. set the stage though, where yeah. if to, I want to set it up though, where if you've haven't done one of these deals before, typically, and it's not always the case, but as like a general rule of thumb, most lenders want a collective net worth on whoever is signing mm-hmm. on the guarantee either whether it's recourse or you're signing non-recourse carveouts to be equal to the loan amount and then liquidity you would know better as a lender but yeah, yeah 10% of the loan amount and that's after the down payments contributed yeah. that that's remaining but you know so then okay some of these i mean your biggest deal probably could be what a 50 million dollar plus loan like how's
0: yeah, That's a couple of things. One, those aren't hard and fast rules from the agencies. One of the lenders, can't remember Fannie or Freddie, is more fixated on the net worth requirement and then the other is more fixated on the liquidity requirement. So oftentimes you're solving for different things. So, you know, we have bought a $50 million asset and we were able to demonstrate net worth less than 50 and still kind of check that box. It just kind of depends. Um, Most of the loans, though, they were agency? Fannie and Freddie or Freddie? We've done, they? I think, two thirds of our borrowing from Fannie or Freddie or HUD. We've got a fair amount of bank loans and um, we've done a couple of
1: debt fund deals to go just kind of one at a time then on the agencies then do you feel like there was a number
0: once you could clear this collectively yeah a lot of it's collective right so I've got my partners you know anybody's going to sign the non-recourse carve out guarantees they look at them you know collectively which helps kind of us achieve you know those those thresholds um we have been you know again a couple of years ago we were light uh we would lie, rely on a co-GP you know, whether we were going to bring in a co-GP to help facilitate our, our funding requirement or not, sometimes you have to bring it in because you don't have the balance sheet to to satisfy the requirement. So then on those deals, the cogp gp was also signing the non-recourse car Yeah, And I don't think we've ever done it where an individual signs, there's usually an entity that the co-GP has to invest out of and their entity will sign. So it's not another warm body, but it's another entity that has some net worth and liquidity that's willing to
1: sign those car Right. Yeah, we've had to do that in a couple of deals where we have an investor who has a holding company. He's bought these things through, mm-hmm. and is like his holding company like blows all of our networks out of the water. Yeah. So then it's, we add that, but he's not on it personally. Yeah. But it's you know it's yeah it's kind of humbling in a way where this, this little thing he set up is blowing everybody You'll away collectively. Yeah. You know, but it's so same thing with those companies. But then, do you have a, a number then where once, let's say like on an agency loan you get above like 20 million or
0: something then it's sort of just it's okay and that would be yeah. up to like a i, I think the agencies and i don't know what the numbers are and you know we've done some fairly large agency loans but after a certain number they're not going to hold you to this specifically the net worth requirement i think they were going to give you a little bit on the liquidity requirement again um i used to be in that game and it's been a while but I think there's some flexibility there, right? They understand the sponsor, um, the capabilities of the sponsor, their track record. Clearly, you need the financial, you know, requirements to be generally in line, but you know, you don't get to six thousand or almost six thousand units and not know what you're doing. I think that's one of the, the boxes they look at as right. well. Right. Yeah, and at this point too, where there's and there's
1: waivers and where they yeah. they can get flexible. Yeah. But what about then on? uh so then, kind
0: of same answer across all different banks. Banks are or? a little different because you're signing personally, right? I mean, I'm not saying banks don't care, but if you're signing, if you're kissing the paper and you're you're signing personal recourse, you know, they want to make sure that you're well collateralized. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not just the asset that they're underwriting; they're underwriting, you know, all your personal assets as well. So, I don't, I don't think banks have the same, you know, threshold that they look for. Um, and I, we, uh, the recent debt fund we did as well they had a a lower net worth requirement, um, but still had to show the liquidity. So I think it's a little bit, it kind of depends on your lender. Yeah. And where
1: I haven't, uh, one thing that's different with the debt funds is they have, you know, a compared to the banks or agency loans I've done, they have a set amount of liquidity and net worth you need to maintain. Yeah. I haven't seen that in any, in any, uh, let's wait for this siren to go by. No problem. I haven't seen that in any, um, any of my agency loans or bank loans where they we need
0: to maintain have you seen that in any new years i think there's one agency loan i can't remember what triggered it but there's a there is a covenant um it's an annual reporting type thing oh okay um,
1: yeah i i don't have a hud loan so maybe it's that one then but i've uh not i can't i, I you know i'd have to go back and look i guess whatever, not here sure. nor there but that was we've we're doing our first debt fund loan right now and that's there's a liquidity and net worth covenant we need to stay above sure. which is new where everything else has been just you get approved at a point in time it's and you don't yeah. need to maintain a certain liquidity which now is a whole nother thing to think about where yeah. now not only do you need to front all the deposits and everything and pay all these pursuit costs and run the company but you also need to yeah. have a certain amount of liquid yeah. yeah you know so now it's just there's, there's a lot more going on than people realize when they're like well you can't put in the full 10 percent yourself that's right you know it's like well right i got that's right yeah a
0: lot of, a lot of variables there.
1: Yeah. So it's not as simple and yeah, it's interesting where, uh, two were right. And so when you, cause when you said you've done this the hard way, what you meant is it's been deal by deal. Yeah. And
0: then, yeah. I mean, I don't have the, um, you know, I don't come from a very wealthy family and, and have like, uh, you know, money accessible to, you know, a lot of, a lot of cash. You've got to, you got to go find it. And, and like I said, every deal, the profile, of the deal location, the risk, you know, threshold the asset quality kind of takes you to different investor types so our again our whole thesis is to go find a good deal and then you know use our relationships and our network to go find the right partner yeah and it's interesting but, to- it, but it does create some sleepless nights and that's also why i say i did the hard way is you type a deal and you know until you know you have a partner you know you're kind of sweating bullets every every day are,
1: are the deals you're bidding on today i'm sure it wasn't like this at the start are you guys having to go non-refundable
0: with your earnest money day we've one? done that it's a good question um we did that end of last year on a deal. We bid on a deal recently that we offered it. Uh, we bid on another deal recently that we did not offer it just cause that was a tighter deal and more moving pieces. You know, in my 20 year career, we've talked, there's been a lot of talk about it. There was a lot of talk about it in 2006, seven, in early eight before the market changed. And now, you know, the last 18 months has been another environment where you've kind of had to offer it up to to compete, which is again, scary scary times right
1: yeah. yep uh and this deals i'm looking at that's required essentially yeah. so then what what are you guys doing if you have to do that or anything that comes to mind you are trying to reduce
0: the, the the risk on that uh have a lot of lend, lender conversations up front to really feel like you know where your your debt's gonna your be at the end of the day um which is tricky in a market like we're in today and March of 2022 where our treasuries have blown out 40 basis points in right. 30 days. And, um, you know, the bond corporate bond market is, is wonky. So, you know, life company spreads are out. So, you know, you just got to feel good about the capital markets. And, you know, we were in a pretty good run there for two years with the treasury at historic lows that, you know, you were going to get 10 year money for 3%. Um, it's not there right now. So you've got to, you know, you, you got to feel good if you're putting non-refundable money out there that the loan that you think you're going to get is is there. So I'd say that's the big one. The other is you got to feel really good about the, the physical condition of the asset, right? You know, you usually get environmental and you know, title survey carve outs to those non-refundable uh, deposits, but you know, you've got to know what you're walking into on the physical side and make sure that your budget and your underwriting contemplates some, some capital for surprises. And then the other component is you got to make sure you've got your equity and can fund that part, too. So um, there's a lot to be nervous about. But the same token, you know, there's two deals last year that I wish we would have bought and we didn't get them because we didn't put some non-refundable out there. And hindsight is what it is. I wish we would have put a token amount out there and, and won those deals. But you live and you learn.
1: Right, and something not everyone might realize, you don't need to have the whole amount go non-refundable, No, depending on the market. I mean, in yeah. these deals in Phoenix, we we did. It was okay. the whole that thing. Yeah, yeah, non-refundable day one. And then on one of the deals, there's no carbos for anything. Not even total survey, n- environmental, nothing. So on that, what we've done, all the same stuff you're talking about, equity lined up ahead of time, debt figured out. Yeah. And then also we're, we, we, we would only do that if, I guess I'll back up, if we have received a clean title report of whenever they bought it, sure, uh, their survey, which would also have no problems. And then hopefully they're phase one. And we're running our own environmental records search, yeah. whatever yeah. the desktop review or. There's a, the, whatever website like Chase Bank and these play uh, F- Freddy mm-hmm. inspections, they just run this environmental record search. I forgot mm-hmm. the website, but we made an account yeah. and then we just, it's like $500 and you get the whole yeah. record search. If all that stuff looks fine, then we'll do that. Yeah. And then we, we try to then do the physical inspection while we're doing the, the purchase and sale contract. Yeah, obviously. So then at that point you kind of done everything. Um, that would be a, a huge item. And then again, these deals were they're they're all value add. Yeah. So in, you know, prior deals, it really mattered. What are the in-place rents doing your lease audit Yeah. today? If you're buying a deal and the rents are 25% below market and you're going to renovate it, like it's not. Your lease audit, you know, actually, what we audited was that the unit mix was right. Okay, <laughs> I personally sure. went door to door counting, make sure how many the units there were on this right. one we're buying. It's ninety six. I went to each one and counted. It was, and then I was like, where, where in this, because we, we didn't have like a, a like a map where each unit type is. And I was like, where are the one beds, and because then I want to count those up now, and That's then smart. the, the yeah. rest, and like, so we confirmed the unit mix completely. Sure. Or actually, I did you yeah. know, during the physical, no, that's all boring. the units were open. Yeah. Make sure you know what you're buying. Cause the in-place rents, it doesn't really matter on this deal, but you know, if we thought yeah. it was 82 bedrooms and it was actually 60, somehow that would matter. That's a problem. So yeah. we, it's interesting what you're spending time on now. It's different. It's a different market, right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That, well, yeah, no, that's, I definitely took, uh, took a lot away from this in terms of useful tips, even for me, so I'm sure people are going to find a lot of value
0: in this. Well, I pre, well, I I hope so. I mean, it's been um, it's been a good run. I feel you learn every day, right? I mean, you if you're not learning, then you know there's something wrong. But um, you know, a lot of hard work, and I feel like we're just getting started though. Yeah, so great. Well, yeah, let's leave it there, Ryan.
1: So yeah, thanks for being on. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. It's good to see you. So, how can let's say there's you know like a,
0: a broker's got a hot deal or LP wants to get some money in a deal with you? How how do they get in touch with you? Uh, look us up on our website. Actually, we're just revamping our website right now. So ArtisanCapitalGroup.com. And uh, we'd love to chat, whether it's um, you know, about maybe doing a deal together or if someone has something to sell. Um, you know, the way we raise money is kind of changing. Obviously, we're always looking for good investment partners. So um, yeah, just reach out to us through the website. My email's on there and we'd love to chat. Great, well, yeah, thanks again for being on, Ryan. Thanks, pal, appreciate it. Great, well, thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next
1: episode. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, Brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views
0: and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.